I read a statistic recently that they, they interviewed hiring managers in, in a variety of industries, hiring managers, people that hire people for jobs, and they discovered that 58% of hiring managers reported that they had caught someone in a lie either on their resume or in their interview. Kim says it's higher. 58% said they had caught someone in a lie on their resume or in their job interview. And it happens in every industry at all levels in those industries. I mean, that's horrible. And you wonder, is that just human nature to embellish a little bit on our experience, to lie on our, our, our job applications? Or is it the job market? Is it that desperate out there that, that people are lying on their interviews? I found a video a while back, and maybe you've seen this video. How many of you, how many of you have ever operated a forklift? Went, Look at that. we got several forklift drivers. This is a, a video of someone operating a forklift, and I wonder... I wonder if this guy lied on his resume. Go ahead and show the video, Neil. There's no sound. This is security camera footage. Here we go. Now, now watch the forklift in the back. Hold on. Here he comes. He's doing fine. He's doing fine. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh oh. <laughs> there you go. And I wonder was that his first day on the job? Was that his last day on the job? Were those the same day? You know, was his first day also his last day? Well, I bring that up. Uh, because I wonder if that's what's happening in the story we're going to look at today in Scripture. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. Those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 928. We've been looking at what we're calling stranger things from the Bible, and we've seen some very strange stories, but we've also seen amazing consistency in these stories. They are stories of failure. King Saul fails, he disobeys God, and as a result, he ends up consulting a medium, a, a witch who calls up the ghost of Samuel the prophet from the deep. Uh, King Saul failed to follow God. The inhabitants of the city of Bethel failed to welcome Elisha the prophet, and as a result, 42 of them were torn to pieces by bears that came out of the woods. King Nebuchadnezzar failed to give God glory, and as a result, he was humiliated. He was forced to live like a beast in the fields until he would acknowledge God. And then we come to today's story, and I wonder if this story of failure is a story of people who lied on their resume, people who said, yeah, we can do that job. It begins in Acts 19, verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you 
by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's a strange story. It's a very weird story. Every now and then I read to you from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, and in The Message it says, some itinerant Jewish exorcists who happened to be in town at the time tried their hand at what they assumed to be Paul's game. They thought this was Paul's game. They thought it was his racket. They thought he had uh, come up with this job, and they thought, well, if he can do it, why couldn't we also? They lied on their resume, and they got caught in the lie. Why? Because they missed something that was so essential, and it's something that we could miss as well. It's not a game. It's not a racket. It's about a relationship with Jesus. Now, back in those days, this idea of itinerant Jewish exorcists, the exorcism business, that was, that was big business. I mean, that was quite a moneymaker. You know, if you've got whatever problem you've got, instead of going to the temple in Jerusalem or instead of going to the synagogue and instead of going to those places, you could find an itinerant Jewish exorcist who would exercise whatever demon it was. So if you've got headaches, they would find a way to exercise the demons of the headaches. If you've got athlete's foot, they would find a demon of athlete's foot. Whatever the problem was, they could find a demon and they would exercise that demon. People went to them and it was big business. Think of it, it kind of compares to the emergency medical clinics today. I mean, have you noticed how many emergency medical clinics there are? And every time I drive to another town, they're building more and more of these emergency medical clinics. So you know they're, they're big business. You know they're making money. It's kind of like fast food. In fact, we used to call the emergency medical clinics, we called them dock in a box. You know, dock in a box, kind of like jack in a box. You know, it was it's that kind of a thing with, uh, with kind of like fast food. If, if something's hurt, if something's wrong, you go to the emergency medical clinic. You don't want to go to the hospital. That takes too long. This is quick and this is convenient, and, and it's big money. That's, that's kind of what was happening with these itinerant Jewish exorcists. And it says they tried their hand at what they assumed was Paul's game. This was Paul's racket. It's a, it's a sweet deal. You know, in this business, it was all a matter of knowing the right words, knowing the right name. If you could find the right God or the right spirit that was above the demon that you were going to exercise, you could cast that demon out by another demon with the name of another spirit. But this wasn't Paul's game. This wasn't Paul's racket. They missed out on what Paul had experienced. They didn't know about Paul the Pharisee traveling on the road to Damascus who was struck blind when he encountered the risen Christ. They missed out on Paul, a man who had every advantage you could have. 
uh, born right. He was, he, he was educated correctly. He had every advantage, and Paul laid all those advantages aside so that he could know Jesus. Paul, who would write to the Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, even if that means sharing in His suffering, even if that means sharing in His death. What they missed was that this was a relationship. And don't you dare think that we couldn't miss that also. We can definitely miss that this is a relationship. You could leave church today. You could leave church today and you could go to Walmart and you could walk down the book aisle in Walmart and there in the book aisle you will find best-selling Christian books. And those Christian books can tell you how to have a better life how to have a better marriage, how to have a better job, how to have a better diet. I mean, they can tell you just about anything, and all you got to do is buy the book, and you will learn these things. You can make your family better. You can make your income better. You can make your outlook better. It's great. It's quite a game. But what does the demon say? The demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Where's the relationship? Where's your connection to Jesus? And it is so easy for us to miss. Some of you have been blessed because you've grown up in Christian homes, and that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful gift. You've grown up in a Christian home. Some of you are second-generation Christians. Some of you are third-generation Christians. You may be a fourth-generation Christian. But if you're here today because your mother was a Christian, that she was a praying woman, that, that she read her Bible, and she had a relationship with Jesus, and that's why you're here and is it really about a relationship with Jesus? If you're here today because your grandpa was a wonderful man of God who prayed and read his Bible and, and taught classes, but where's your relationship with Jesus? You see, God, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You know what I mean? You don't have a relationship with God because you have a relationship with someone else who knows God. You have a relationship with God because you're his child, because you're his child. God has no grandchildren. Being born into a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Your relationship with Jesus makes you a Christian. I know Jesus. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? You know, there's, there's a far better example in the Bible about how to handle demons. And it's found, the same author wrote that story as well. It's in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8. Those blue Bibles, if you keep a finger there in in Acts, and you turn over to page 865, Luke chapter 8. I want to begin just with verses 26 through 29. Some of you will be familiar with this story. Luke 8, verse 26. As they sailed, then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert." You see the difference in the story? It's a still a strange story, but it's different. The demons 
immediately recognized who Jesus was, Son of the Most High God. They immediately recognized, in fact, they recognized Jesus in ways that his own disciples had not yet figured out. The demons were aware of who Jesus was, and they knew exactly what their relationship to Jesus was. Jesus is in control. They knew exactly what Jesus was capable of doing to them. See, the problem for us might be that we don't really know what Jesus is capable of doing in our lives. And we need to get to the point where we understand that there are things in our lives that we dare not tackle apart from Jesus. There are things in our lives we dare not tackle apart from Jesus. These seven sons of Sceva, what did they say? They said, I command you by the Jesus preached by Paul. (laughs) But when Jesus cast out the demons in Luke 8, he just simply took control. Verse 30 continues the story. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside, and they begged him to let him enter those. So he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. This would have made a great Stranger Things from the Bible story. This would have made a great sermon all on its own. Why? I always look at that story like, why pigs? Come on, Jesus, what do you got against bacon? You know, I love bacon, I love, I love ham. What, why do you got against bacon? Well, obviously, to a Jew, to a Jewish audience, there is nothing more unclean than a pig. And in a way, what Jesus does here is a very real uh, visual illustration um, of exactly how evil these demons were. Uh, it was a graphic way of showing them, this, this is evil, this is wrong. Don't think that it's not. Jesus asked the demons, what is your name? Now don't for a second think that Jesus didn't already know. He knew what their name was. But there are things in our lives that we need to name. There are things in our lives that we need to call them what they are. Not gloss over them, not make excuses for them. We need to call them what they are. Addiction, name it. It's addiction. Pornography, name it. Gossip, name it. Don't excuse it. Don't dress it up and make it sound like prayer requests when it's really just gossip. Name it. Abuse, name it. Don't excuse it. Don't dress it up. Don't make it sound like, well, it's not really that bad. Call it what it is and expose it for the evil that it actually is. And understand, there are things in your life that you dare not tackle apart from Jesus. Who were the seven sons of Sceva? Well, who was Sceva? The text tells us that Sceva was a Jewish high priest. He was a big shot. He was a holy man. He was a man who had a relationship with God, but they they were related to their dad. That's all they had. They didn't know Jesus, but the demon did. They didn't know Jesus, and so they had no power to overcome it. And instead, you read what happened, verse 16. The man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, seven guys, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Naked and wounded. That's their legacy. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if this had happened today? You know what would happen? Every single person would be there doing this. You know, 
We'd be getting video. We'd be getting pictures. It'd be all over Facebook. It'd be all over YouTube. There'd be a hundred different YouTube videos from different angles. They would auto-tune it. It would be amazing. There'd be a hashtag. Hashtag seven sons of Skiva. Hashtag fail. You know, there'd be hashtags out there. It would be all over the place. There are things in your life that you dare not tackle apart from Jesus. Now, I want you to hear that very carefully. Can you overcome alcoholism apart from Jesus? You know what? You can. I've seen it done. You can overcome alcoholism apart from Jesus if we're just naming it alcoholism. Can you overcome drug abuse apart from Christ? Of course. Again, I've seen it done. Can you be a good husband or a good wife apart from Christ? You know what? Some of my favorite married couples who I watch and I see how well they get along, they're not Christians at all. And yet they love each other and they care for each other. They treat each other with amazing love and respect. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is this. Apart from Christ, you will never face the reality that what is holding you back is a sin. Apart from Christ, you will never name that as evil, as unholy, as unclean, as that which separates you from God. And apart from Christ, you will never know not only the grace to abstain, but the grace to walk in wholeness, in new life. And apart from Christ, you will never see that your victory can change your world. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? They tried to make it all about themselves. They tried to make it all about who they were and, and what they could do, but guess what? It wasn't. And it's not about me either, and it's not about you either. It's about Jesus. And in the end of the story, the whole world knows that it's about Jesus. Verses 17 through 20 says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. About a quarter of a million people, by the way. Both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There is no way you can take the story of the seven sons of Sceva and spin it into a win. It was a tremendous, epic failure. But the end result in that world, there in Ephesus, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. He was not only glorified, he was glorified in the highest. He was praised in the highest. And, and previously, what had been this little band of Christians that had never even heard of the Holy Spirit, suddenly we have the church in Ephesus, one of the leading churches, the leading church in Asia, a church that we know more about than, than the original church in Jerusalem, a, a church that we have a book that Paul wrote to, uh, two letters he wrote to their preacher. Uh, even a letter from Jesus in Revelation. Some of you have got things in your life that you think are failures. And you know what? They might be. They might be failures. But you can still get the victory. And even better, you can share that victory with other people. Some of you here today might be friends of Bill W. Bill, Friends of Bill W., that's what members of Alcoholics Anonymous call themselves. 
Bill Wilson was a drunk. There's no other way to put it. Bill Wilson was a drunk. But one night, instead of going to the bar, he went to a payphone and he called another drunk. And him and Dr. Bob sat down together and met together and held each other accountable and encouraged each other. And then they got other guys together and they turned their failure into a tremendous victory for millions of people. I have permission to share this story. Last winter, over the span of about a month, I had people in my office, I had people calling me, members of our community, members of our church, who were dealing with addictions. They themselves weren't addicts, but they were people who loved and supported and cared for the addicts. There was alcohol addiction, there was drug addiction, there was horrible things going on in their lives. And they came to me wondering what we could do, and it didn't take long before I started seeing a pattern here, and I said, you know, we, we've got to do something. And I started praying, and, and I started calling some friends of mine and trying to get some advice here and there and, and, and wondering what we should do. The tug that I felt from God was that we were here to help the helpers, that we, we weren't going to do anything yet for the addicts themselves, but those people that love the addicts and surround the addicts, that support system, we were going to help those people get well. And so we began meeting together every week, and we met together, and we prayed together, we cried together, we called counselors in to meet with us, and again, not the addicts, but the, the family members and the friends. But we started to get help. Would it surprise you to find that since we started getting help, every single addict that we love has gone through a recovery program? To varying degrees of success, but every single one of them has entered recovery because we started getting well. We went from failure, deep personal failure. We went from, from meetings where we cried together and prayed together to meetings now where we, we laugh, sometimes inappropriately, but we laugh. And it went from failure to victory for us. To the point that the members of that group say, how can we share this with others? How can we bring other people in who are going through the same things and help them find the same victory in their lives? I love how the story in Luke 8 ends. Luke 8, verse 35, says the people, okay, so they, they hear what's happened. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. This was a man who was chained naked, naked, in the tombs, and he would break the chains, and they find him, what? They find him dressed. Uh, they came to find Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They did fine with him as long as he was crazy and naked and powerful and strong enough to break chains. But when they see him dressed and sitting at the foot of Jesus and in his right mind, they are freaked out. They are afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked him, they asked Jesus to depart from him, for they were seized with a great fear so that he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with them, but Jesus 
sent him away. Listen to this. Sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. (laughs) The healed man, now clothed in his right mind, wants to leave and he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to follow. He wants to be a disciple. Can you imagine what kind of a disciple this man, what kind of an apostle this man could have been? But what does Jesus say to him? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Sometimes I find myself relating to that man, (laughs) having returned to my home to declare how much God has done. Acts chapter 19, verse 20, the story of the seven sons of Sceva, concludes with the words, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Somewhere in your life there's a failure, and you've been afraid of it. What if someone finds out? What if they find out who I really am? But it's not a failure. It's a victory that someone in your life needs to know. They need to believe that it's possible. They need to see it in you. The demon responded, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Jesus, I know. I've heard of Kansas Christian Church, but who are you? See, I can't do it for you. We can't do it for you. We can pray for you. We can encourage you. We can provide opportunities for you to gather, grow, and serve. But ultimately, there is no way around it. It's up to you. You have to meet Jesus. You have to know Him. You have to be known by Him. And I don't need to tell you what that failure is in your life is because you know it. You know your sin. You know your stumbles. You know where you've messed up. But now I want you to know your Savior. The one who can save you even from yourself. The one who can set you free. The one who can give you victory. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, it fills our hearts with joy to be able to say, Jesus we know. But it never ceases to amaze us when we realize that you know us. You know our weaknesses, you know our failings, you know our sin, and yet somehow you still love us. And so those times when we want to run and hide from our sins, those times when we beat ourselves up, when our failings leave us bleeding and exposed to the world, remind us that you are the one who forgives, that you are the one who restores. You are the one who makes madmen sit dressed and in their right mind. And no matter the offense, no matter our wrong, we can trust you for forgiveness and restoration. And we can trust you not just for ourselves, but for our world also. In, in both stories we looked at today, the end result was communities that praised you and knew what you were capable of because you used flawed people. <laughs> we are flawed people. We lay ourselves before you. Use us. Use our failings to extol the name of Jesus, that He would be praised in the highest. And it's to Him be glory forever. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.